thank you right very much indeed. So we, we uh, have a contract with each other in the next half an hour. Uh, I hope we have done some homework on this, but I need you to check up on me. So won't you please make sure you have the Bible open in front of you and also the outline on the inside of the bulletin. And uh, if you disagree with anything I say, do come and tell me afterwards. Meantime, let's ask for God's help. Our gracious God, you are so glorious that the heavens cannot contain you, and yet you have assured us that you dwell with those who have a humble and contrite heart. And we pray that just as Jesus left the majestic glory of your heavenly throne to dwell amongst men, that you would come and dwell among us this morning by your Holy Spirit, through your word. We pray that your divine finger will help us as we try to read your word, that your finger will point with great skill into our hearts, applying your word to each one of us individually. And most of all, we pray that as your word both humbles us and lifts us up with a great sense of gospel grace and joy, that we might enjoy fellowship with you as dearly loved children, enjoying fellowship with their Father. And we ask it in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, we're in a short series on prayer, which of course is one of the great privileges, isn't it, of being a Christian. Uh, When we start to follow Jesus, God makes us a member of his family, and one of the first things we're encouraged to do is to pray. But of course, at that point, many of us get rather stuck. Uh, What is prayer? Uh, How are we supposed to do it? Where do we begin? Well, in order to focus our thinking, we're looking at the prayer life of Elijah uh, to see what we can learn. Now, Elijah, of course, is a very important figure throughout the Bible, not just here in 1 Kings. So, in the New Testament, for example, uh, when Jesus goes up the mountain to be transfigured, his disciples are absolutely amazed, aren't they, to find him talking to Moses and Elijah, men who had died many hundreds of years before. There is Elijah, alive and well, talking to Jesus. So Elijah very clearly has a special significance in the purposes of God and we need to watch him closely. Now here in 1 Kings, the context is that Israel has been slowly wandering away from God over many, many years and God has commissioned Elijah to bring them back. Last week we looked at two of Elijah's prayers and we learned our first important lesson about prayer. As one writer put it, prayer is laying hold of God's word and pleading it before him. So in prayer I start by listening to what God has said 
what God specifically has said he's going to do and then I ask him to do it. And last week we saw that Elijah prayed like that on two occasions and on both occasions his prayers were answered. Now this morning we're thinking about prayers that are not answered. Because of course there are times when we think we're asking God for something that is perfectly in line with his will and for whatever reason God doesn't do it. Now that is a very difficult and a painful subject and I want to be sensitive to that. Uh, Some of you may know the story of C.S. Lewis and how uh, before his wife died of cancer he prayed earnestly for a long time that God would heal her. But God did not answer that prayer and uh, for some time after she died C.S. Lewis said he felt as if the heavens were as brass that God had, as it were, closed the door of heaven and bolted it against him. So unanswered prayer can be both painful and mysterious. We can't always give neat, perfect explanations in every case. But, more often than not, the reasons why God does not answer prayer might be much closer to the surface. And our passage today will help us understand why. I want to suggest that our passage gives us a helpful diagnostic tool we can apply to our own lives when we find our prayers are not being answered. Because it invites us to ask ourselves two questions. Question number one, who or what do I worship? Question number two, how do I pray? So let's look at those together. Number one, who do I worship? Now last week uh, we saw that King Ahab and his wife Jezebel had introduced a new religion into Israel, the worship of a god called Baal. Uh, Baal was thought to be the god of rain and fertility. So it was entirely appropriate, wasn't it, that God's judgment on his disobedient people was an indefinite drought of rain and of dew. South Africans take note. As chapter 18 begins, uh, this drought is now in its third year and it's led to a severe famine in the capital city, Samaria. That's verse 2. But now in his mercy, uh, God has determined to end the suffering by sending rain uh, on the land once more. But before he does that, Israel must be convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that there is only one God. And so uh, Elijah announces the famous God contest on Mount Carmel to determine who the real God is. The terms of that contest are set out for us in verse 24 and you'll notice in verse 24 Elijah speaks to the prophets of Baal and what he says in in essence is this You pray and I will pray and the God who answers prayer is God. That essentially is what Elijah is saying. 
Now quite clearly, God has not been answering the prayers of the Israelites. During the preceding three years, we can be absolutely certain lots of praying had been going on for an end to the drought. But so far, there was no sign of any rain. Why not? Because God had not been listening. Last week, we saw the reason why. Because God had warned his people in Deuteronomy that if they turned away from him and started worshipping other gods, there would be no rain. Now, as we read this chapter, the danger is that we see idol worship as utterly irrelevant to our modern situation today. When somebody starts talking about idolatry, we tend to imagine uh, primitive people bowing down and worshipping a rather grotesque statue. And I don't suppose there's anybody here this morning who's doing that. Now you might therefore be thinking, well, Simon, look, um, idolatry is not really our problem, so let's move on. But idolatry is actually much closer to home than most people think. According to the Bible, idolatry is God made in our image. So I think a rather good working definition of idolatry is this. Idolatry is God according to human imagination. Um, I'd like to show you a brilliant description of this somewhere else in the Bible, so keep one finger, please, in 1 Kings and turn with me to Isaiah 44 on page 510. Isaiah 44, page 510. And uh, we're going to pick it up at verse 12. Isaiah 44, verse 12. The blacksmith takes a tool and works with it in the coals. He shapes an idol with hammers. He forges it with the might of his arm. He gets hungry and loses his strength. He drinks no water and grows faint. The carpenter measures with a line and makes an outline with a marker. He roughs it out with chisels and marks it with compasses. Now notice this. He shapes it in the form of man, of man in all his glory, that it might dwell in a shrine. Pause on that. Isn't that striking? Left to himself, when man thinks of God, the best he can come up with, the highest ideal he has, is the glory of man. Isn't that striking? And as the passage goes on, we're shown how dangerous it is for human beings to think like that. We're told how a man cuts down a tree Uh, uses some of the wood to make a fire to cook a meal, what does he do with the rest? Verse 17. Can we all see verse 17 in our Bibles? From the rest he makes a god, his idol. He bows down to it and worships. He prays to it and says, Save me, you are my God. Now, of course, um, Isaiah is being sarcastic, isn't he? 
But he's making an observation about men and women that is just as true today as it was when Isaiah wrote those words. Because what he's saying is that man's natural inclination is to look for salvation in something of his own making. Now that is the deception that lies at the heart of all idolatry. A few years ago, uh, Tim Keller published a book called Counterfeit Gods. And in it, he reveals some of the gods that people attempted to worship today. Um, I've given you an extract on the reverse of the blue question sheet. You might like to follow it with me. Tim Keller says this, A counterfeit god is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. An idol has such a controlling position in your heart that you can spend most of your energy, your emotional and financial resources on it without a second thought. It can be family and children, or career and making money, or achievement and critical acclaim, or saving face and social standing. It can be a romantic relationship, peer approval, competence and skill, secure and comfortable circumstances, your beauty or your brains, a great political or social cause, your morality and virtue, or even success in Christian ministry. An idol is whatever you look at and say, in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning, then I'll know I have value, then I'll feel significant and secure. And Tim Keller comments, there are many ways to describe that kind of relationship to something, but perhaps the best one is worship. Well, that's hit the bullseye, hasn't it? And I want to encourage us, please, to talk about that together in our home groups this week. But meantime, come back with me to First Kings on page 255, 1 Kings 18, because I want you to see how idolatry normally works in our lives and why it is so very dangerous. Because, you see, Israel's problem wasn't that they had turned their back on the Lord and were giving all of their allegiance to Baal. It wasn't that. Israel had a slightly different problem. Look with me, please, at verse 21, bottom of the right-hand column. Verse 21. Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. Now can you see what's going on? They couldn't actually make up their minds who to worship. Because there were some things about Baal that they actually really rather liked. Uh, For example, Baal worship was the religion of the state. And uh, if you wanted to get on in Israel, it was prudent, wasn't it, to be seen to be supporting the king's religion. 
It also had sexual freedom written into the liturgy. So uh, if your marriage was in bad shape and your wife or your husband were uninteresting, well, in Baal worship, you could go and have sex with one of the shrine prostitutes. So you see, this was a religion that scratched where people were itching. On the other hand, of course, the Lord was the God of their fathers. Uh, They knew all about the fact that God had brought uh, their ancestors out of slavery in Egypt with mighty signs and wonders and brought them into a land flowing with milk and honey. Clearly, the Lord was powerful, even if he hadn't flexed his muscles recently. And what about all those rumours that were going around that it was the Lord who had caused the drought? See, the result was that the people were wavering between those two opinions. They couldn't choose between Baal and the Lord. So what they did was they tried to blend the most attractive elements of both religions. Now that sounds rather odd, But you know, we see exactly the same thing happening today when people try to graft their own preferences and desires onto the Christian gospel. So while they might claim to be Christians, if we look very carefully, we'll notice that they're seeking salvation not just in Jesus, but rather in Jesus plus something else. Might be Jesus plus a job, uh, Jesus plus academic success, Jesus plus the children, Jesus plus financial security, or any of the other things in Tim Keller's list. So this is, I think, a highly uh, significant moment to draw your attention to an important detail in verse 21. Because the word translated waver in your Bible is very unusual. In the only other place where it is used outside this chapter, it is describing somebody who was physically crippled. Now that's helpful because it's telling us that God's verdict on people who look for meaning and significance in a Jesus plus religion, God's verdict is those people are spiritually crippled. Which means their spiritual practices are useless and their prayers won't be answered. Can I say, therefore, that Elijah's warning to Israel in verse 21 is also a warning to us this morning. Elijah says, if the Lord is God, follow him. In other words, if we want our prayers to be heard, we have to make a conscious and definite decision to follow the Lord in a life of wholehearted commitment. Now, I wonder where you are this morning. Are you following the Lord wholeheartedly? Or are you perhaps wavering? Where do you stand? Who or what do you worship? That is the first question arising from 1 Kings 18. And the second question is this. 
How do I pray? Well, I hope you're back in 1 Kings 18 now. Because the the pagan prayer meeting on Mount Carmel was very impressive indeed. And I think it would put most churches today to shame. For a start, there was 100% attendance. Uh, 450 prophets turned up, and as far as we know, there were no apologies for absence. And when was the last time you attended a prayer meeting that lasted all morning? Uh, Three or four hours at least. Not often, I think. But you see, that's what happened here, wasn't it? Verse 26 tells us they prayed from morning till noon. And there could be absolutely no question at all about the sincerity of these people. They got so carried away, they were shouting, they were dancing, they were even slashing themselves with swords. But, at the end of the morning, there was no response. No one answered. So, Elijah begins to taunt them, doesn't he? Page 256, verse 27, left-hand column. Shout louder, he said. Surely he's a god. Perhaps he's deep in thought, or busy, or travelling. Maybe he's asleep and must be awakened. Uh, The word translated busy in verse 27 is actually a rather polite way of saying that Baal might be relieving himself, or as we sometimes say today, using the facilities. See, Elijah's saying, your God is actually just like a human being, so you ought to treat him as such. And so the the prophets rise to the challenge, they redouble their efforts for the whole afternoon, another three or four hours at least, and then at the end of it, there's that absolutely brilliant summary, isn't there, in verse 29, There was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. Heaven's door was shut and locked. Now I think at one level uh, this passage is an important reminder that popularity and passion are no guarantee that a particular religious gathering or church are of God. Now, I think it's important to say that because there are some extraordinarily popular religious gatherings in Cape Town, aren't there? But before you and I join in, we need to remember that popularity is not by itself an indication of truth. And you and I need to learn to distinguish between meetings that are truly of God and those that, in fact, are pagan, because there are plenty of them. How do we do that? Well, as we've just seen, the very first question to ask is, are the people in this movement or gathering or church, are they following the Lord? That means, are they trusting his promises and are they obeying his commands? Because if the answer is no, they're not, then however passionate their prayers might sound, God will not be listening. 
But this passage is also, I think, challenging us to examine our own prayer lives from a slightly different perspective. You see, the Bible always assumes that when we pray, our natural tendency will be to slide back into pagan habits. Now, that may be a surprise to you, but I want to show you why it's true. Because the best example of this is in the teaching of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Please turn ahead to Matthew 6 on page 683. Matthew 6, page 683. Because you're going to see in a moment that there's a very important link between the teaching of Jesus in Matthew 6 and our passage this morning in 1 Kings 18. Now, the the main section on how to pray in verses 9 to 13 is very familiar because every child in Sunday school can recite the Lord's Prayer as we did this morning. But I want to draw your attention to the small print, as it were, on either side of the Lord's Prayer in verses 5 to 8 and then verses 14 and 15. Because in those verses we find the Lord Jesus making some very important do-not statements. Now I think the the parallel here uh, is with the Ten Commandments, isn't it? Because you remember the context, don't you, of the Ten Commandments. Uh, God brings Israel up out of Egypt into a new relationship with him as his redeemed people and immediately... God has to say to them, don't do this, don't do that. Now why not? Why does God have to do that? Because the great danger, you see, is that they will slip back into the pagan ways they used to follow in Egypt before God brought them out. And in exactly the same way, in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus is saying, even though you are now a member of my family and you know how to pray to me and what to ask for, don't slip back into paganism. So notice, for example, verse 7. The Lord Jesus says, When you pray, do not keep on babbling like the pagans, for they think that they will be heard because of their many words. Now, the reason that I've asked you to look at this passage with me is because a number of experts believe that Jesus had the prophets of Baal in mind when he gave this warning. He was thinking all about 1 Kings 18. The word to focus on in verse 7 is that word babbling. It's a very unusual word. It's actually the only time it appears in all of Greek literature. And for that reason, it's quite difficult to translate by a single word. But what Jesus is condemning here is mindlessly repeating set prayers over and over again as if God can't hear us or as if God has got a short memory. See, that's what the prophets of Baal were doing on Mount Carmel. Now, don't misunderstand me. Jesus is not ruling out persistence in prayer uh, because there is another place in the Gospel of Luke where Jesus, you remember, tells a story about a woman who is extremely persistent about bringing her situation before an unjust judge. 
And Jesus holds that woman up as a good example of the need for you and I to be persistent in prayer. But you see, mindless repetition of the same prayers is different. What's the problem with it? Well, there are two I can immediately think of. You might be able to think of others and you can tell me about them afterwards. But the first is that it comes from a false belief that when we pray, the power lies with us and not with God. So that mindless repetition is is a form of manipulation. It's a refusal on our part to present our situation to God, leave it with him, trusting that God knows what is best. And so we imagine, don't we, that by repeating the same prayers over and over, we can somehow control the agenda. That's the first problem. The second is it reveals a tremendous ignorance about God's perfect knowledge of all things. So look with me at verse 8. Jesus says, don't be like them, that is the pagans, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. You see, pagans think God doesn't know what we need before we ask him. Or if he does, that he doesn't really care. But Jesus says, please, don't pray like the pagans, or your prayers will not be answered. Then there's another very striking do not in verse 5. Do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. Now I think for most of us this is uh, much closer to home, but it's actually rather difficult to spot. Uh, The babbling of verse 7 is characteristic of pagan religion, I think it's fairly easy to recognise, but hypocrisy? Yeah, that's a little bit more difficult to see, isn't it? Because Jesus is talking here about our internal motives. He's looking at what's really going on inside our hearts. Now, there's nothing wrong with taking prayer out of the church, into the open air, into a football stadium or wherever it is. Um, the, the Global Day of Prayer takes place every year, doesn't it? On Pentecost Sunday, I think, which this year was June the 9th. And for some years they used to arrange these massive great open air prayer meetings, didn't they, in Newland Stadium. And I think the motives of the organisers were absolutely right. But Jesus is saying, look, hang on a moment. If you go to something like that, please search your heart before you go. And if your motive is simply to be able to say you've been or to be seen by your friends or to tell the pastor afterwards, be careful. Because, verse 5b, if you're not there to worship God, I tell you the truth, Jesus says, you have received your reward in full. In other words, your prayers won't be answered. And then lastly, very briefly, there is a third, do not, which is clearly implied in verses 14 and 15. Jesus says, if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not 
forgive your sins. Now the meaning's clear, isn't it? If God gives you something which only he can give, namely the forgiveness of your sins, and you're in a position to forgive somebody else for for what they've done against you, but you refuse to do it, you cannot expect God to answer your prayers. If you won't treat other people in the same gracious way that God has treated you, well, it's sheer foolishness to expect him to answer your prayers and you will still be in your sins. I mentioned C.S. Lewis a moment ago and I think his comment on verses 14 and 15 is very helpful. He says the teaching is clear. Jesus does not say that we are to forgive other people's sins provided they're not too frightful or provided there are extenuating circumstances, in other words, provided they've got a good excuse, or anything of that sort. We are to forgive them all, however spiteful, however mean, however often those sins are repeated. If we don't, we shall be forgiven none of our own. So, my friends, as you leave this place today and go home, I do hope you're going to ask yourself these two very important questions. Who or what do I worship? How do I pray? Let's ask God to help us do that, shall we? Heavenly Father, thank you that you delight to answer the prayers of all your children when we pray in faith. But Lord, sometimes, like your people of long ago, we wander away from you, our faith wavers, and we find ourselves worshipping other gods. And then our prayers are not answered. Forgive us, Father. Have mercy on us. Help us to follow you and you alone in lives of pure, undivided devotion to Jesus. And as as we do so, we, we ask that you would revive our prayer lives, purging them of foolish practices that are more pagan than Christian. And instead, help us to pray simply and believingly as Jesus himself taught us. For it is in his precious name that we ask it. Amen.